0: All right, everybody, the uh, scripture passage for today is Luke 1, 25 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph in the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now uh, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and his name, you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him to the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to Gabriel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, uh, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. Now your uh, relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who is said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, uh, the servant of the Lord, let it be with me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. So Trey started us out in Advent on, uh, uh, I don't know, I thought that series on this so-called Malachi, is that, am I saying that right? No. No? Oh, thanks, Mom. It uh, was, uh, was great. And the thing that struck me most about it was that, you know, it's a book about the role of judgment in uh, directing and protecting God's people. Um, you know the metaphors like refining a metal or uh, i don 't know being washed with laundry or soap, uh, a number of different ones in there the The sense of those is that the point of god 's judgment is not just to punish us or to uh, show us what we 've done wrong, but the point of god 's judgment is to prepare us for things that are laid out for us for tasks that God has for us in other words the The narrative there is is that uh, with God, uh, we are transformed. We are different and aimed at a purpose which is bigger than and more important than whatever our own designs are. So even though it doesn't feel like it, judgment is about favor. Judgment is about uh, God bestowing on us uh, something that allows us to be different. And, And in this Malachi book, I took Trey's point to be that there were two different ways that God's judgment was a form of favor. The first is that God used judgment to kind of lay low the enemies of Israel. But the second was that God used uh, God's judgment in order to make God's people more like uh, the, the, the the group that he intends that they be. So for the rest of Advent, we're going to talk about favor. We're going to talk about who is favored, what does it mean to be favored, and then importantly, what that favor requires of us. And so we're going to look at Luke because it's the uh, gospel that hangs its hat most on this idea of being favored as a way of telling the story of Jesus's emergence. So like the, the non-catchy son, you can I'll do something with this, but the non-catchy title of this sermon is uh, Favor, Fear, and Prophecy. Uh, and it, it, it includes... I, uh, if you ask wonder why I'm dressed like Fred Rogers today it's because it includes a hot take on Mary that we'll have to see how it pans out who are God's favored people? well Israel for sure uh, and in the narrative as we all know it Mary's favored the shepherds are favored we imagine prophets and kings are favored there's lots of folks who are favored and I guess the real question is are we favored in one sense we always say, oh yes God blesses us so of course we're favored but we have this kind of weird way of thinking about who exactly it is uh, is the focus of, and who it exactly it is that displays God's favor. Part of the difficulty is that if you're not like a recognized prophet or an anointed king or, or a prominent uh, member of the North Carolina medical and/or eye care community, for the rest of us, uh, if you're not uh, visited by an angel in a field, or uh, if you're not uh, if you don't have visitors come to to see you, we don't quite have a good uh, sense of what it is that indicates the fact that you're favored. It's hard to understand who exactly is the object of favor in a way that doesn't make favor, uh, in, you know, something that's distributed to everybody and not entirely relevant. So the the, the kind of theme I want to look at here is that there's this there's a there's these kind of parts of what it means to be favored. Right? Here's my. And it it has four parts instead of three. So I'm totally breaking with the typical evangelical tradition. Bang, take that. To be favored is to be seen, is to be chosen, is to be transformed, and is to be made responsible for something. That the punchline of God's favor is that God sees us, God chooses us, God transforms us, and finally God makes us responsible for something That he asks that we do for the kingdom. Which seems kind of simple, but it it actually, as you dig into it, it's kind of it's an interesting, interesting theme. Favor is something that we either kind of misunderstand or sometimes we spiritualize it. It's another thing I'm gonna talk about a little bit, this advent, or we trivialize it. So, first of all, we misunderstand the idea of favor because in our culture, favor and favoritism are the kind of opposite of pure or true love. So the primary place we talk about it is. You know, we talk about a parent that favors a kid, or you talk about someone in the classroom who, you know, favors the teacher's pet. And for us, favor is this kind of concept of a partiality for a person that oftentimes we ascribe to being—I don't know—like you favor someone; they're, they're your favorite kid because they're an easy kid, or because they're the kid whose personality is most like your you. So that when we talk about favor and favoritism, we typically understand it as like the limited human version. Of true love. And the idea that we think about in in terms of our faith life is that we want to get rid of uh, favor for particular people so that we can love everyone unconditionally. But we don't have a particularly good sense that there is something beautiful about being the object of favor. That to love someone is to bestow on them a favor that is unique. That's not not something I think besides, especially outside of romantic relationships, we have a very good sense of. One of the ways that we solve the problem of favor is we spiritualize it. Right? So God is favoring certain people. And what we need to do is we need to make that favor uh, kind of abstract thing about how awesome the people are. And like, that's how we usually think about Mary. Like, I'm no Mary. You're no Mary. We're no Marys. Mary was something really great. But the weird part is, is we, when we spiritualize favor when we see it as something that aims specifically at, at, at something that is uniquely about one person, this really weird thing happens, which is that we say, oh, well, Mary's favored and, you know, uh, you know, Joseph in a weird way is favored. And yeah, the shepherds are are favored. But if you, especially if you grew up in evangelical circles, one of the things that we do constantly is we point out people in the Bible and we say there was something special about them that is totally and radically different from us. They're favored they can be transformed. You can't expect that kind of transformation out of me because, well, hey, I'm no Mary. So first we kind of have difficulties with the idea of favor. Second, we take the idea of favor and we basically employ it in such a way that we say, well, other people are favored. I'm not favored. I'm just kind of a guy that lives in Hillsborough and I don't know, like I drive a mediocre car and the uh, homeowners association has good reason to be mad at the external maintenance of our house. I, I should not be a person who is a subject of favor. And we use this idea of favor to say it's about special people who are picked spiritually and it certainly could never apply to us. And then the last thing we do with favor is when we kind of worry about the, the tendencies that that trajectory for favor that makes some people special and other people not special, Uh, what we do is we say, well, favor is really about how God loves everybody. So yeah, God favors Mary, and he favors the shepherds. God favors all of us in every way, and uh, you know, in the end, being the recipient of favor is either something that is the result of God's nature, or you're in the right place at the right time, so you had a free uterus and uh, affable nature, and therefore you were picked to be the person who bears the Son of God. It's difficult for us to think about favor in the way that folks would have thought of in the ancient world, as something that was about you being the direct recipient of a charge which is about bearing a mission and is about bringing that mission for the purposes of advancing God's kingdom. So that's our challenge, to figure out at Christmas what favor is not misunderstand it, not trivialize it, not spiritualize it, not see it as something that's just randomly about God's weird preference for the folks in and around Bethlehem. At that time, but to see favor as something which is directed towards specific people, in which specific people are transformed and given responsibilities, but then to see those people as exemplars of, as possibilities for the favor that is extended to all of us, that each one of us can be seen, chosen, transformed, and made responsible for something that advances the kingdom of God. So let's well, let's think about it in terms of Mary. So, you know, in the passage we have for today, uh, Gabe's come to Zechariah, and uh, it told him that John was on the way, and that he was going to prepare the word of the Lord, etc. And then after Gabriel finishes dropping off that message, he comes to a virgin named Mary and says, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. I mean, you know, you knew this part was unavoidable. The word for favor is beautifully interesting. So, the word is ke and it means you are favored. But the root of it is karitu, uh, like is the same word that came through that uh, terrible abomination of a language, Latin, to become our word, charity. So, this word ke uh, kairotu has these three distinct and simultaneous meanings. It means, ready, to make graceful. That when we extend this, it makes a person graceful. It means to pursue or bestow with grace and accept. And it also means to see the grace that is in someone. This idea of favor is so beautiful because it has within it the idea that God sees a grace that is in us. God transforms us so that we have a certain grace. And God gives us a grace which is always and only uniquely God's. And the concept favor has all these meanings in it together at once. These meanings which are, in a weird way, even contradictory. So it's no wonder that Mary has to stop and be like, what exactly are you saying, Gabriel? Because what, Mar- what, what has been said to Mary by Gabriel is that God has made her graceful, God has accepted her pre-existing grace, and that God has uh, accepted or given her a kind of grace. And there's these contradictory, beautiful meanings all at once. You are made graceful. You are given grace. You are found to be already full of grace. It, it's, it's gorgeous, and it demonstrates all the different ways that it's hard for us to think about favor. The difficulty is not that God is, you know, or Gabriel as messenger of God is, is contradictory here. The incredible beauty here is that, though it may be hard for us to understand that all of those things are present at once, God, who's bigger than our ability to understand or conceptualize, has in this idea of favor something which is both about God uniquely picking and pointing towards and seeing a grace that is in us about God transforming into us into something that was worthy of grace and simultaneously about God giving us a grace which can only and always be God's and not ours. That's the beauty of God's love. There's no rational justification for why we deserve it. And at the same time, God creates us to be the inherent bearers of us. That's the beauty of God's love as demonstrated at Christmas. We don't deserve it at the same time. We are made to be uh, recipients of it. We are made in a certain way with a path and a trajectory towards which we uh, could deserve it. We are made to be the recipients of the greatest gift in the world that is given at Christmas and simultaneously we could never be worthy for it the gorgeous, incredible beauty of Christmas, that it is at the same time God's excessive and God's irrational gift to us that we could never warrant and simultaneously the reason for and the reason why we were made in our direction in the cosmos is towards being the recipients of that gift because God makes us in God's own image. It's beautiful. Gabriel says to Mary after saying this, don't be afraid. You found favor with God and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him to the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I want to focus for a moment. It's mostly related on that be not afraid part. What is the most important command in the Bible? If you measure it, and this is a a point Trey's made before, if you measure it just by the frequency of the command, if you measure it by the frequency of the command, the phrase, do not be afraid, appears in most translations of the Bible some 70 times. Unless you're like, you know, a new living translation person, so that the phrase is like, hey man, like, don't freak out. But not counting the fear nots and the do not be afraids, if you look at the Greek and or uh, Hebrew phrases that, that as a command, do not be afraid, That command happens more than any other command in the gospel. Mind-bogglingly, it happens more than any specific injunction to love or to believe. Imagine how it would transform our practices of faith to say that the primary thing that God has said to us is not to be afraid because God has a plan and a purpose for us. Imagine if that was the core of Christianity, if every time folks ran around and they thought, how should I respond to X, Y, or Z, if their first injunction was, hey, don't worry about it, God's got control. I mean, Mary has reason to be afraid. There's a large, ethereal being giving her strange (laughs) greetings. She's young and about to have a baby without a husband, although, you know, it's a different time. People had babies a lot younger, but... And we've heard all these reasons why Mary should be afraid before, but I can't help but think... The part of the reason why Gabriel says what he does is because there is a certain degree of fear in being favored. Here's an interesting hint about that of all the things on Mary's mind right then. She's not interested in why there's an angel standing in her room. She's not interested in why God is sending her a personal message. She's not interested in the whole reconstitute Israel, eternal kingdom thing. It's weird to me that Mary's first question is a very, very basic question about biology. I mean, I mean think about it. Like, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, ethereal being standing before you saying that you're going to reconstitute Israel. I guess you could, you know, wonder the basic biological question, but I don't know. What, what is the question really about? What's behind it? It makes good sense in some ways, but if a dude in shining white robes stands up in my house and says, you're going to, you know, fly to heaven, I'm not going to ask, well, I don't have wings. It seems like there are bigger questions there than what are the basic questions of of logic, especially if you think about a God who has a command over material reality, but not to put too fine a point on it, but I think the reason why Mary asks That question, the reason why Mary asked the question of where the baby comes from, is because underneath it, there's a reason why Mary has a fear and an objection, and it is related to her personal state. There's a lot riding what Mary has to do. Birthing the Sion of Israel is no small thing, much less the creator of the universe. And I think what's behind her concern with the, like, we'll call it logistico biological problem, is that she's concerned about her readiness for the task. She's concerned about this obvious objection, how is it going to happen? Is it possible? In part because she's concerned about, hey, can I do it? Is it possible for me? And I want you to think very carefully. If we, where have we heard these various ideas that relate to the possibility for fulfilling, a God, for fulfilling God's mission? Where have we seen God come to people and say, hey, you've got a mission to fulfill, and a person reflects back that they're not entirely sure whether or not they are capable of or equipped to do it? Anybody recognize that pattern? It's the pattern in Israel for how prophets are called. That's where this whole thing about prophecy comes in. Mary and Gabriel quibble, and then verse 37, Gabriel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then Mary says, here I am, the servant Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And then Gabriel departed from her. We are so used to the story of, Of Christmas about being checking off prophecy boxes. Line of David, check. Jerusalem, check. You know, check out all the different things that Jesus fulfills. And no doubt, Luke is kind of telling the story as a fulfillment of a prophecy that much everyone basically agrees on. But here's the nutty thing. We don't spend time thinking about the fact that Luke is very intentionally framing Mary as not just a vessel, framing Mary as more than just a cooperative person with a little bit of space for rent in her belly. Luke is framing Mary as a prophet. Luke frames Mary as a prophet because sometimes it takes a woman and it should not escape notice that Mary succeeds in getting it done where no other prophet of Israel has. Think about how cool that is. Luke is writing Mary as the seer more than just a super lucky, super nice Lady, Luke is writing Mary to be a prophet, and that's why he goes through the kind of script that we have in Israel that validates a prophet's identity. A heavenly visitor comes. The heavenly visitor says, Hey, you know, uh, I'm here on God's behalf. The person has a startled reaction. What's going on? The heavenly visitor almost always says, Do not fear. The person then offers an objection. The angel reassures them about being in God's direction or purpose. They accept it, and then they go. It is the basic element of the gospel that confirms that someone is in fact a prophet of God who is about to deliver something that is transformative. It's also the basic pattern in Luke of Mary's exchange with Gabriel. Luke is trying to say that Mary is a prophet. It is also the basic pattern of the calls for Moses and Isaiah. Read Exodus 3. There's a burning bush. Uh, Moe, uh, tells Mo to, you to know, tell Pharaoh what it wants. Moses is like, oh, I don't know. I'm not very good. I can't do this stuff so well. God gives him a sign. Moses accepts, and bam, it's on. Or Isaiah 6. He looks up to see the Lord on a throne. He says that he's unclean. God burns his lips. He's ready to speak. Bam. He's ready to go. The basic pattern that's being laid out for, here, for Mary is the same pattern that's laid out for almost any great prophet. In Israel, Mary is a prophet. She is literally bearing or carrying a word for God, and It will be the final and most effective word that makes the relationship not only between Israel and God, but between God and the world right, where Moses didn't do it, where Isaiah didn't do it, where no one else did it. Mary delivers a prophecy that is about manifesting God's word in the world. There's also a case for seeing Mary as some other things, which are kind of rad, but that once I got to Tamsin and Trey gave me some advice about that, that's a whole separate sermon. But, uh, there's the thinking about what exactly it is that Mary does— incredible. Why does it matter? Advent is about preparing ourselves to receive God's favor. We're used to seeing Mary as the ultimate model for favor, for a love and grace that is placed and found, and gifted. And all of us, maybe this Advent, we'd like to think about Mary as a prophet who is delivering a word that reestablishes the relationship with Israel forever that Mary is seen, and therefore the person of Jesus is seen as the completion of God's prophetic task. But there's only one tough thing here then. Why doesn't Luke say it? Why doesn't Luke just say, hey, I'm, I'm saying Mary's a prophet here, and that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the words of the prophets. So I had to dig on this, but it's really interesting. And it's not, this is not just one of those really interesting, hey, uh, you, know, you can be more interesting at cocktail parties. This is one of those beautiful examples to me where figuring out why he doesn't say it tells us something amazing about the direction and purpose of the story as written in Luke. So why doesn't Luke say it? It's, uh, and why does it matter? They're the same point. So I hit the books on this one, and it turns out, at the time, uh, around the kind of Greek-influenced ancient uh, Middle, or Middle East, that there were these magical virgin prophets everywhere that the Greeks had a strong connection between one's virginity and one's ability to represent and to bear the word of God. And in fact, as we've talked about before in whatever letter, there were whole temples filled with virgins who were somehow seen as people who had unique access uh, to the character of God. It was a trope. It was a type. The virgin wizard, the virgin prophet, the virgin who had unique contact with God. And here's the thing. That Greek audience would have been used to the idea of a magic, wizardly virgin. It would have been very easy for them to say, well, all right, you know, Mary's just another one of these magic virgins that gives people access to God. Got it. But if Mary were received that way, the whole project of Christmas would have been lost. Mary's not just another magic prophet whose virginity is a validation of her speaking the word of God, what we see in Mary and what we see in the concept of favor is this, that God has chosen an utterly regular human being to be seen as worthy of grace, to be transformed by the love of God and simultaneously to be gifted a grace that otherwise would have been lost them, that Mary, in order for the incarnation to be uh, as something that produces a Jesus who is truly, fully human and fully divine, in order to make the truly radical, uniquely Christian argument that someone could be simultaneously fully and in every meaningful way human and also simultaneously and in every meaningful way God. That person would have to come from a a mother who is both regular and exemplary, who is both a prophet that fulfills the direction of Israel and simultaneously someone who represents all of us in some meaningful way. So Luke fulfills this obligation by doing this beautiful trick. For his Jewish audience, he has everything lined up for them to see, oh yeah, of course Mary's a prophet. She goes through the script for validation. But for his other audiences who would have some issues with that, she is a real human. What is implied, but not said is every bit as important as what is written and that is why this matters. Mary is fully a prophet who finally brings the word of God to Israel in a way that establishes us, that establishes and transforms it and what is true of her is true of us and what is true of us is true of her that because Mary is fully and in every way undoubtedly human. Mary's humanity is the test case for all of us. Christmas is the point of promise that her prophecy and ultimately delivering the word in the form of Jesus will be finally effective and in doing so every one of us is grafted in to the history of Israel and every one of us is affirmed in every meaningful way regardless of whether you're a man or whether you're a woman because in the end Mary the woman gets it done for all of humanity and in doing so as just a regular a normal human being she opens up and makes possible a transformation of the world which is brought by the word and the son that she brings into the world, Jesus. It is beautifully and stunningly an expression of the character of God. Amen. Questions are top? Dan. Since the Jews of the day were familiar with all the stories of Greeks, including their thoughts about their gods, and Zeus had this habit of having lots of offspring, When Mary asks her question, how is this going to happen, and the angel says the Holy Spirit will come upon you in the power of the Most High, the angel is telling Mary something that from a Hellenized community, she draws some analogy to what happened. I think so, there, and there's a lot of really interesting textual criticism of this, and it all focuses on the uh, the, the verbs used for the interaction between Mary and the Holy Spirit, and the, the interesting thing about that, it, that, that kinda, there's a lot of debate about it, but the interesting thing about the textual critical analysis on it is that the Greeks would never have shied from, I don't know how I'm to say this more gently, but the Greeks would never have shied from saying that the interaction between Zeus and Zeus's, you know, not lover, that's, what, what, yeah, they'd always define it as intercourse. And what's so interesting about what the angel says to Mary is they, they don't use that word. Uh, the word actually is one that is derived from, and this uh, to me this is beautiful, it's a, as I understand it, it's derived from the uh, old Hebrew concept of ruach, that when the spirit broods over the waters at the beginning of creation there's a, a Greek translation of that that I think I know and I got to double check it but in the debates about it that Luke is using to say it's almost as if God is brooding over Mary in the same way God broods over the concept of creation at the very beginning and so it is also a stark contrast from the way the Greeks would have described or explained it which yeah that's a great point. Well oh, Linda Would have consciously written in a way that uh, catered to the, the Greek mindset, but it makes me wonder: Do the other Gospels, especially like Matthew, that was written for, uh, even Martin, maybe, for a Jewish audience? Yeah, um, do they make stronger hints about Mary being? To be a prophet. so what's interesting is that uh, you know what and this is why Advent is always a funny time to prep sermons for because I mean John 's barely got an account of it right yeah. and um, uh, uh, the uh, basically it's only um, Matthew and Luke that really have a, a detailed account of the birth in any any meaningful way. Um, you know, Mark just kind of banged, Jesus is on the scene doing things, and there's some talk about his history. So, the, But the relevant comparison that's really interesting that you're suggesting, and this is something that, uh, you know, Trey's been on for a long time, and I think it's absolutely right, is that at Resurrection, we don't seek to understand the context in order to say, aha, see how stupid you are when you think the Bible is literal? It has to be rooted to a context. At Resurrection, we seek to understand the context because you can have insights like this about what it is that is being said by the Spirit in writing it this way, that it fills out the complexity and richness of the account. And so your question is dead on, like in the sense that we could look for Hellenistic influences in one gospel to say, well, you know, this is actually what God's trying to say, and, and the way we understand that is how it's consistent with the Hellenic mindset. And we could look at the other gospels that are written for a more Jewish audience and say, oh, well, you know, there's a different set of things here But the beautiful thing about it is if you see it not just as being about the text itself but about being in the context, you can all of a sudden have this really rich, almost comparative sense of, you can say this about God in this context but not in this context, and it's the way we have, that's why we have, you know, if you're not a literalist, you can have a particularly rich understanding of theology because you can look at it as employed in different contexts and kind of test that out. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's like, it is the, to me, I mean, not to go totally meta here, but it's... Like the answer to the basic question of meaning and story and all the thing that we always talk about is that the model of the incarnation is what should be our model for understanding. A literalist is a person who says the reality of God is simply uh, the truth that's contained in it. An incarnational reading says God is manifest different history to points, times, and cultures, and that doesn't make God, you know, random or trivial or simply a results of our culture but in the very same way that Jesus is the embodiment of the, of the person and character of who God is by reading in that way we can have a richer and fuller and more even more certain understanding of who God is because we see the ultimate truths of our faith as embodied in and uh, moving through historical context to understand something greater about him but don't tell any of our literalist friends that I said that because it implies that their reading is somehow lacking Anything else? All right. Good. Uh, Prayers to the people.